Hello and welcome. You've tuned into the School of Ministry podcast. Paul is your Bible teacher today. Later you will be given information how to reach us. If you have questions you would like addressed, let us know. Feel free to contact us. Now enjoy the lesson. Soterology, the study of salvation. We've been looking at this, considering many of these different aspects in our studies. And the general aspect of salvation, we've talked about some of that as well as salvation in the Old Testament. And where did those saints go uh, before the coming of Christ. We're talking about election. We're finishing up tonight on three aspects that the Calvinists look at in regard to election. And then we'll talk next week, Lord willing, about security of the believer. Is that something you can walk away from? Is that something that can be lost or you can just turn down? Then we talk about something that's happening in our churches quite a bit. Our saints only in the church. And then we look at, is baptism essential for salvation? What do we do with those verses, with there's one verse that talks about the baptism for the dead? Having said that, we want to try to break down any difficult passages so that we have clear, concise meaning, because I believe that the Bible is a book that is easy to understand, and we want you to have confidence in the Word of God. That means that you can give an answer to others that might ask. And then also, we are inviting your difficult questions, passages, so that we can look directly at those either while we're on Facebook or you can email them to the church or to myself. There's the email information. And so, The question is, does the Bible teach election? Well, certainly it does. However, we do not want other men's interpretations and slanted views on election. We want what the Bible says. And so, for an example, God elected the patriarchs of old to enter into a a covenant relationship with him. In the New Testament, we have the New Testament church in covenant relationship with Christ. And God elected that by Abraham, he would bring a people into the world by which Messiah would come. He's also elected people to certain positions, just like the Apostle Paul said, as we read a little bit ago, that he was elected to be a preacher and an apostle. And so the New Covenant, the New Testament, was made by God's election through his churches that the gospel would go forth clearly into all of the world. The Bible does teach election, and you become one of the elect when you were born again by the blood of Jesus Christ. So let's talk about the acrostic tulip. T-U-L-I-P. Because remember, those that hold to Calvinist doctrines hold to five points that they call the TULIP doctrine, which is total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, 
irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. We're going to talk about limited atonement, the irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints this evening in this study. Calvinism, Reformed theology, teaches a limited atonement. What does that mean? It means, in their view, if man is so totally depraved that he cannot respond to the call of God, and God is sovereign in his unconditional choice, then when Jesus died, he died only for those who were chosen by God. That means not for all mankind. So limited atonement is not taught in the scripture. The Bible clearly teaches that the death of Jesus Christ is for all people of all times. We're going to be looking at that. We're going to be seeing that because if I were a Calvinist, I have to deny that Jesus died for anyone else but the elect because if he had, and I believe that he's elected people to salvation, then everyone must be saved. And since they are not, they would come to that thought, then atonement is limited. And that's exactly what they're teaching, a limited atonement. Let's think about some of the doctrinal positions in holding to that. Because in contrast to limited atonement, the Bible teaches that the death of Christ was for all people of all times. And he does that by the doctrine of substitution. The Bible teaches clearly that Christ has given himself for the sins of the world. Here's a few of those scriptures. There are many, many more. But not only that, it talks about that he died uh, for the church. He died as a substitute for the church. And here it's using the word church in the institutional sense. And then also that he died for individuals. He died for those Christians and Paul talks about that in, in Galatians 2. The Calvinists only use the last group of verses to prove a limited atonement. And it overlooks the verses that teach that Christ was the substitute for every man. Hebrews 2 and 9 tells us that, that he died for every man. Opposed is that redemption is against limited atonement because redemption is certainly adequate. Christ gave his blood a ransom for sin. Therefore, the lost are redeemed. So the price of redemption is the blood. That's what 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20 tells us. The Greek words that are used for the idea of the price of redemption uh, it's being applied to the servants of uh, a marketplace, a, a slave market. And the illustration really reveals the extent of our redemption, but not only ours, but for all mankind, for all of those who are sold under sin, Paul tells the church at Galatia in chapter 3 in verse 10. We see that First, the Bible teaches that the sinner is in the marketplace, the agarazo, and that those who were sold under sin are redeemed. 
but also agorazo applies to false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2. Therefore, if Christ paid the price for all that they were able to be redeemed, he died for those who obviously were not saved. He died for all mankind. Christ paid the price with his blood and bought the slave out of the marketplace. And that word is echo agorazo, out of the marketplace. That implies for us that this person will never again be exposed to sale. And there's also the word that Paul uses in Galatians 4, 5, lutro, that meant to pay the full price for the slave and release them. They were free. Now that, I think, has to do with teaching us to learn to walk in grace, that we're not living under the law. We'll never again go back under that old way. All right, so now let's think about the third argument against this uh, uh, limited atonement is the word propitiation. Limited atonement cannot stand because propitiation means satisfaction. The Bible teaches that Jesus is their propitiation for the world. John, 1 John 2 and 2. He is the propitiation for our sin, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, it was satisfying. It met the needs of every person. And so he was made the sin penalty for the world. The justice of God has been offended by the sin of mankind, but the sin penalty of death could not be retracted and the very nature of God could not forgive the sinner. And therefore, the sin penalty of death couldn't be retracted. So the price of satisfaction was the blood of Jesus Christ. And the act of that satisfaction is called the propitiation. So the Bible teaches that Jesus is the propitiation for the whole world. So since Christ is the propitiation for the whole world, atonement cannot be limited. All right, our fourth argument. Our fourth argument against limited atonement is the fact that Jesus was had satisfied all the demands of the law by nailing it to his cross. He took it out of the way, it says there in Colossians 2.14. God's moral nature was offended when man broke the law and partook of the fruit of the garden. All have sinned because in Adam we are all born sinners now. And we continue that being under condemnation because we could not meet the needs of the law. The law is the moral judge and it commands mankind. And if we break one law, it was you were a lawbreaker, James 2 and 10 says. So like sin, which is that sin principle, the law is the law unit. And therefore, uh, it God could not deal with the sins or the law on a commercial basis, if you would, meaning that if there were more individual sins, Christ would have to suffer more. But rather, Christ dealt with the sin principle 
and satisfied that law unit. So he he satisfied the law unit for saved and unsaved. Jesus nailed the demands of the law to the cross, and he made an end of the law. We can think of many, many scriptures. Matthew 5, 17, uh, not only that in Colossians 4, but Ephesians 2, 15 and 16. So the end of the law doesn't mean that Christ uh, put the law out of existence just for the elect, but that the law principle was no longer in effect as a moral judge to condemn mankind. So Christ satisfied the law principle for both the saved and the unsaved. Hence, it denies a limited atonement. All right, fifth. The fifth argument against limited atonement is the fact that Jesus Christ reconciled the world to himself by his death. Reconciliation is God making man savable by placing him in a favorable light in God's mercy. So, what is that? The Bible teaches that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. And so, this meets the conditions of God's plan for salvation. Since the world is reconciled, surely the atonement is not limited to just the elect. All right, let's talk about, because there are so many arguments against limited atonement, and it's so powerful, powerful for our evangelism, since Christ was the substitute for the lost, and since Christ had paid the redemption for them, Christ fulfilled the demands of the law. He is our satisfaction, the propitiation. And since Christ has reconciled us to God, the lost have the obligation to accept Christ. And Christians, we have the obligation to tell them the good news. And that's our our need. And that's something that Calvinists misunderstand uh, in that regard. So let's talk about irresistible grace. Calvinists teach that the grace of God has an immutable, that is an unchangeable, it, that is, it is as unchangeable as the power of God so that man cannot resist it. Well, they refer to this as the effectual calling. They teach that since God of his own free will has chosen or elected certain men and that Christ died for them, that then man cannot resist the power of God that brings him to salvation. And that's what the uh, many, many different things like the Westminster Catechism that uh, delineates these things, it is called the effectual calling. And the effectual calling, they say, is the work of God's almighty power and grace, whereby out of his free and especial love to his elect, and from nothing in them moving him thereunto, he does in the, his accepted time invite and draw them to Christ Jesus. So that's what they call the effectual calling. Well, since the Calvinists teach that salvation is the gift of God, and that man can do nothing in order to get that salvation, he also can do nothing to resist it. So, however, that Calvinist claim 
it, it's not a passive human agent who involuntarily receives Christ. They teach that humans find Christ irresistible. They want to receive him. But if the human is unable to resist, then human responsibility is taken out of the way, and man is but just a, a passive uh, agent. So, when someone is saved, they've believed, they're regenerated. They say that it's caused by God first performing a regeneration within that person, meaning they cannot resist that call. God has regenerated them, and they want to accept that. So, since the Calvinists teach that salvation can, they that no one can pass by it. It's they're not a passive unit. Uh, the doctrine of irresistible grace is built on the misunderstanding of the doctrine of man. First, that irresistible grace takes away the initiative of man. But the doctrine of conversion and uh, uh, stands really against irresistible grace. Think about how many scriptures in the New Testament speak about people resisting the Holy Spirit. Here's one, Acts 7.51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so do you. I'll give you just a few more. There are so many scriptures that talk about man being able to resist the Holy Spirit or grieving the Holy Spirit. It's just amazing. Here's a couple of them. Isaiah 57, 15 and 16. Isaiah 63, 10. Hebrews 3, 7 and 8. They're also talking about sometimes when the Holy Spirit calls and they uh, did not accept and some might say, well, then they weren't the elect, so they could resist. But that's just not a biblical teaching. Proverbs one twenty four is another. Maybe one of the most heartbreaking. Remember in Acts 26.28, Paul talking to King Agrippa. He's been talking about him. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Well, if a Calvinist would say he wasn't one of the elect, Therefore, the Lord didn't do something in him to make him want to accept Christ. However, that's just not a biblical uh, uh, reality that man can resist. And man is responsible or able to respond. And we've talked about that. So, what about the rich young ruler that turns his back on Christ and walks away? Sad, sad situations. People can resist the Holy Spirit. So the calling is the invitation of God to men to accept by faith the salvation that's available through Jesus Christ. It's sent forth from the Bible. When the preaching of the gospel, it is the power of God. The scripture says that it's the preaching of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So nothing can be clearer from the teaching of the Bible than the fact that the call and the invitation are universal. No person that's born can say that God did not give them a chance. Also, there is a free offer to salvation to any who will hear, repent, and believe. It's available to all.
Let's think now about perseverance of the saints. This is the last of the five, because Calvinists teach that saints will persevere because their salvation is dependent upon God's irresistible grace. Well, they say that that then was granted to them because Christ died in atonement for them, for the elect. And so that's the logical conclusion that since salvation is of the Lord and absolutely no part of it's dependent on any condition found in the elect, but it's wholly dependent on God, who has willed to save those whom he gave to his son, salvation can never be lost. So the saints of God will surely persevere because he has given them his promise that no creature can take them away, including themselves. Therefore, we shall persevere because he wills us to persevere. That's what the Calvinists say. So since man has nothing to do, then he will persevere because the Savior has declared that he has eternal life. Let's think about that because we hold to the doctrine of eternal security. Now that's different from perseverance of the saints as the Calvinist teaches. Calvin taught that if one was saved, he is going to persevere because out of the election of God. But the Bible teaches that when a believer is given the new life, it's called eternal life. They have it forever. God doesn't give it to you and then take it away. He does not place his Holy Spirit in you and then take the Spirit away. That Holy Spirit will continue to work in a person's life until their death. And then, of course, we see how the Holy Spirit continues to work. So it's true that salvation is based upon the sinless life. It is based upon the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It is no part of works of man. Man cannot earn it or deserve it. However, we see that eternal security is based upon what Christ did. And we are in Christ. Therefore, we are secure in him. There's just two of many, many verses that talk about eternal security. We're going to get into that next week. So we hold to that, that the uh, occasion of believers sometimes who died outside of fellowship of God that really questions this perseverance of the saints. Think of that. If they died outside of the fellowship of God, did God cause them to persevere uh, in their fellowship? They, these persevered, or, or they would say they had to persevere unto death. So what about Ananias and Sapphira? They conspired together to lie. Peter says they haven't lied to man but to God. And they died in a state of rebellion. What about some of those Christians who come to uh, the Lord's table for the Lord's Supper that were in Corinth because of their sin, because of some of the different things that they did. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty that many sleep. In other words, they had died. God had brought about uh, his discipline in order to bring fear into all of the church. What about those people? Were they eternally secure, or had they persevered 
as the uh, uh, Calvinists teach, that they would persevere because of the election of God. Well, we see that there are also those, John talks about 1 John five seventeen and 18, there is a sin unto death, where certain sins lead to the premature death of saints. What about them? Well, we understand eternal security because the death of those believers outside of fellowship with Christ does not take away eternal security. They are still secure. Did they persevere? No. But were they secure in Christ? Yes. So there is a difference in the teachings of the perseverance of the saints and eternal security. We kind of Sometimes many of our preachers talk about perseverance of the saints and really what we're talking about or really what's meant is eternal security. It's a better term, a better way to mention it. It does question the doctrine of perseverance as the Calvinists teach it, certainly. Well, why is all of this important? How does this apply to me? How is this practical? How is this going to help you live for Christ today or in the next upcoming days? Why do I need to know this stuff? Wrong theology produces wrong practices in life. I want you to know Christ and the free pardon from sin. I want you to know him and the wonderful opportunity that you have of being a child of God. So if we believe that God had chosen some to salvation, why should I be concerned about someone else's eternal life? It's already been determined. It's set. I have no part. I can't be a blessing to anyone or a a curse to anyone. It's already been done. Nothing I can do about it. So what I believe about my eternal life has great ramifications in life, doesn't it? Because it will determine how I live for the Lord. If I know that I want to stay in a close relationship with Christ, because I don't want to die outside of fellowship with Christ, not that I lose my, uh, my walk, not that I lose my security, but that I would lose that uh, fellowship with him. And I want to enjoy that fellowship with him. Also, You have to ask the question, do you live in fear that you can, by one sin or a bad choice, lose that salvation? Well, that's something else. Many people live that way. They're afraid that they're going to lose their salvation from this little thing or that. Does it cause you to question your salvation? Boy, if I sin, did I do this? Did I do that? Am I really a child of God? Many of these questions we're going to be dealing with, especially next week when we talk about security of the believer, we're going to also talk about some of the pitfalls of Arminianism. We're as much against Arminianism as we are Calvinism because we want to teach the truth that was once delivered to the saints. So next week, we talk about security of the believer. Can we lose salvation or walk away from it? Those are the questions. Thanks, brethren. I hope that this is a blessing to you. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the message. We trust you've been encouraged, challenged, or generally built up spiritually. If this lesson has sparked questions on this or other topics, 
please see our contact information in the description or email us at sclofministry at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.